Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. This is episode 44 with Robert Gwaltney, talking about music, fashion, architecture, experiencing firsts when you're in the middle, and his debut novel, The Cicada Tree. Well, I'm very excited to talk about the book. I read it quickly, but then I would put, I'd stop and I, my highlighter was wearing out because I just, I liked the way you told the story, not just the story, if that makes Thank sense. You. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's set in the South mm-hmm. and it's set in summer. And to me, the season was almost a character. You know, it could just feel the heat. You could, you could feel the sweat. There was a moment where you talked about sweat beating or pooling under her ponytail and the weight of the ponytail. And so the summer was a big component for me reading it. I felt it. I wondered, I guess, if that was purposeful for you, if when you were envisioning this story, did you always feel it in the heat of summer? Yes, I always felt like um, the story should be told in the summer, you know, and a lot of a lot of southern stories are, um, as you said, you know, the South is a character. And um, the the summer is the character, and, and there's this oppressiveness to the heat that yeah. helps build tension. I think. I agree. So, are you a summer person? I am not a summer person. Again, you know, the the, the summers here can just be so oppressive, and uh, I just I just prefer to be comfortable. <laughs> I was that way as a boy too. I wasn't. Um, extremely outdoorsy I um, was inside in the in the AC reading a book or you know in a swimming pool where I could be comfortable um, I think I would say that I am more of a mountain person than I am a beach person oh yeah um, that's a good way to divide it versus winter and summer because mountain conjures a lot of other things besides winter doesn't it yeah it conjures um a sense of, of rusticness and, and a little bit of isolation as well. So, you know, yeah. if you're a private person, I love, I love going to the North Georgia mountains. Yeah. People forget. I think that Georgia has that um, variety yeah. of, of landscape that you From can reach the mountains. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the mountains are gorgeous there. That's true. Well, so the story was, it's a window of a summer in an 11 year old's life there's a lot of internal conflict in that part of your life, right? Right, exactly. Um, but also, you know, the story is told from an adult, Annalise, who's the protagonist looking back on the summer of 1956 when she turned 11, to the best of her recollection. Yes, you feel really like you're in the presence of an 11-year-old and a lot of it. I, I feel like it did tap into that period of your life really authentically. Thank you. Yeah, it. I didn't find it, too terribly challenging to channel my my 11-year-old self. So I think maybe I am an 11-year-old on the inside. Uh, an 11-year-old girl, she's in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely brought that perspective, I thought, really 
really beautifully to the page. I thought she was a very complete character. I could I could feel all of her different internal conflicts as we were working our way through the story. So it's loaded with, with secrets too. In addition to sort of a, you know, self-discovery, there are layers of secrets in here. And some of these secrets are, are dark, you know. Yeah. How did that part of it come to you? That part of sort of marrying together this coming of age with these sort of peeling back and unlayering of secrets? Well, I mean, I, I knew, ju- you know, just by way of, of genre that within the Southern Gothic realm that there would have to be a layering of secrets. And, it, and it's something that I always respond to as a reader. I, I definitely wanted to write a book that um, I would want to read. And, um, you know, and I really layered it with all the things that I love. And, of course, those secrets and you know, obsession and self-discovery and, and disillusionment. Yeah. Yeah. You've also layered in a very natural phenomenon. We know it from the title. You have included this, this emergence of cicadas. It's really, it's really sort of visceral in parts of the story, you know, I think. Um, and this is, it's something that happens every 13 years. I think in this story, that's what we know that happened was 13 years ago. So I think there, there are seven-year and 13-year-old broods that come about. So you'll have these massive emergences of, of cicadas. And of course, there are cicadas you know, every summer, but you don't have these enormous broods that come out. And this just happened to be a 13-year brood. And I recall um, growing up in South Georgia one summer when I was a boy, um, just being, we were just covered up in cicadas that were everywhere. The, the, we would call them locusts. Um, yeah. but, which isn't correct, but um, their shells were their their shells were on everything. Yeah, and that always stuck in my mind. And if you've ever really looked at at a cicada shell, they really are creepy looking up close. They are similar. So for someone who doesn't know, similar to when a, a snake sheds its skin. Yes, with all of that certain those the detail of the snake sort of imprinted in the skin as they come out of it you see that in a cicada shell yeah. also it, it is sort of a it's a hollowed out sort of translucent version of mm-hmm. the insect the bug exactly. uh, yeah they are kind of creepy they are creepy you know they're yeah they're, they're scary close up <laughs> yeah yeah but you know your character isn't afraid of them no you know and, and I wasn't either you know as I was fascinated with them and and the fact that they could cling to anything, you know, these shells. So they were, um, you know, in the opening scene in the first chapter, you, know, you have Annalise, the protagonist, and her friend, Edamay, who are actually collecting them. They're gathering them up, and, you know, they're, um, Annalise is making a crown on Edamay's, in Edamay's hair of cicada shells. So they weren't, they weren't afraid of them. They were, they were fascinated by them. Yes. Uh, she has them in her pockets, too, right? She's carrying mm-hmm. them around with her, these little shells. Okay, that image of the cicada shell in her pocket is a good place to pause. I want you to hear a passage from the book. This is the part where you first hear about his character, Annalise's, special connection to music. This is from The Cicada Tree, written and read by Robert Gwaltney. The sky boomed, rattling the walls of our clapboard house. 
jostling the windows in their shoddy frames. Edame and I pass the hour at Daddy's old upright, attempting to rehearse the stranger's funeral song. Edame's gift was singing, and mine, the piano, each of us the perfect accompaniment to the other. Though I never played it before, Stormy Weather was the only song my heart could remember, as though it were the only song that ever was. I always knew how to play, where my fingers should go, an instinct planted way down deep, just as easy as breathing. Daddy thought it had been he who taught me, but I knew long before, back before I first opened my eyes to the world. It was easy pretending, just a little lie, a reason to be close, if just for a spell. But that was when he loved us, Mama and me, before he drank all the good away. Sure is pretty, Miss Wessie hollered from the kitchen. The two of you could coax an angel right down from heaven. Don't it make you sad, I said, singing for dead folks. She sucked in her bottom lip then let it loose. No, not really. She cast her green-flecked eyes down at her hands, running them the length of her fingers. But I knew the truth of it. Somewhere in that deep-down spot where the music lived and swirled, I knew when she sang, she sang for her poor, sweet mama. Percussion rolled above us, vibrating the floorboards. Piano keys shivered. Everywhere was music, even in the clink of mama's jelly jar vase. Wish I could go with you. My voice sounded peculiar amidst the storm's refrain. Me too. Edame sat down next to me on the piano bench, leaning her head against my shoulder. But you get to go to the Mayfields. She feathered her fingers across my arm. Folks say the whole town could fit right inside their house. I guess. I contemplated the size of such a place, the place Mama went on Saturdays to earn extra money. Must take a long time to clean. Maybe you could play with Marlissa. Marlissa, such a pretty name. I poked gently at the cicada shell hidden inside my pocket. In truth, I knew very little of the Mayfields or their daughter Marlissa. Mama never spoke of them, and I had yet to see one up close and in the flesh. Only the passing of their long black car through town, the world caught and reflected in the sheen of its darkened windows. One more time, Miss Wessie said from the kitchen, then it's dressing time. The rain dissipated, the weight of Miss Wessie's feet across the floorboards, audible once more. Edame lifted her head from my shoulder. The cicada shell shifted in my pocket, the sharp tips of its legs sticking into my skin, grabbing hold around my finger. I flicked at the thing until it turned loose, my fingers finding their place on the keys. Edame did not wait for my music, finding the song within her without the help of a single note of mine. I pulled my hands from the piano and listened, sorrow seeping from the perfect pitch of her soprano. I sat, eyes shut, letting her enchantment settle over me, feeling a tingle just under my skin. The weight of the thing growing until it sat heavy, pressing against my insides, until there was nothing left for me to do but cry. Rain fell against the tin, at first a smattering, 
the tempo gaining speed, the force greater until there was no other sound, nothing left of music but a deafening whir, and the vinegary taste of sadness on my tongue. So she's experiencing music as a taste and visually almost in the air, she can sense it. I, I just loved that. I thought that was such a great thing to add to her character. And, and there's something really pretty remarkable about all of the women in the novel. There's, there's mm-hmm. sort of this supernatural edge to all of them in a way. Yes. One of the characters, female characters that I really love is Miss Wessie. Mm-hmm. And um, I, was, I was writing down as I was reading the book, Miss Wessie's Wisdom. Right. Yeah, you're right. I think that um, that's her supernatural ability is her is her immense wisdom. I think she's the wisest, smartest person in the novel. And, you know, and she gives the family she's the family anchor. Yeah. Um, and though she's not, you know, biologically related to Annalise and her mother, you know, she is a caretaker and is sort of adopted into the family mm-hmm. as a second grandmother, really, to Annalise. Yeah, did you model her after anyone? Yeah, I think that Miss Wesley is probably a composite of just um, an amalgam of women I've known through the years who were grandmotherly in in um, in type and who were who were wise and um, who you might sometimes be a little scared of. Um, not not that you would be in danger in any way, but you would no, always intimidated. Be, yeah. Intimidated, exactly. That you right, right. you knew that when you were in her presence, you needed to mind your manners. <laughs> I ended up writing down a lot of different things. Pretty is as pretty does. I love that you gave that to Miss Wessie. And, and you know, my my, my uh, Granny Louise would would say that quite a bit. Pretty is as pretty does, and um, you know. Aunt, <laughs> As, as you read, Annalise isn't really appreciative of that, those words of wisdom. It really rubs you the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, um, oh, we just elevate up onto a pedestal things that are beautiful. You know, we just give them so much value. And that's part of what, you know, that exterior beauty is what she's sort of obsessed with, with the Mayfields. And what lies underneath is is not beautiful. And in their actions, yeah. they are really ugly there's there's part of the book that I think really deals with bullying what did you draw on to create that level of it's cruelty but it's also conniving it's very tricky yeah it's the sophisticated level of bullying it is very sophisticated and you know the the reader will, will understand you know how that came to be at the conclusion of the story but I it was my hope because you know, I was sympathetic, you know, to all the characters, you know, even when really awful things would happen, mm-hmm. because I, I had a, a good understanding of why they were happening. Um, so where that came from, I guess, you know, I mean, I think that there's no child on this planet who's not experienced some level of bullying or unkindness growing up. And, um, you know, and certainly I, I certainly experienced some of that as well. So I, I, I pulled upon my own experiences you know, and I just wanted to make, make Marlissa as interesting as possible. And, you know, she is, in a way, there's, there's sort of several antagonists in the book with, with Marlissa, you know, certainly being the nemesis. And I just think that 
I love a good villain. <laughs> I love I love when they do awful things. And 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 yeah. Annalise really can't seem to win for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yes. It's funny that you just said that. I love a good villain. You read it and you just think, oh, she's so clever. I think you give a lot of clever attributes to all of these young characters, which is, again, I think something really delightful to read because it's so true, right? We're all so multidimensional, even at age 11. One of my favorite, um, oh, um, get his name. Abel? Abel. Yes, Abel. And he is a collector of words in the story. And that I just, I made a list of some of the words that he was making a list of rapturous, colossal, beguile, uh, conflagration. And he shares these words with Annalise. It's this great interchange of, as their friendship is developing. Um, where, where did you get that idea? <laughs> well, I was a boy with a notebook. <laughs> I sort of I stole that from my own life. I'm by no means Abel Darlington, but um, but yeah, I I was always a collector of words, and I was always listening to conversations around me, listening to adults speak, and you know, and my ears would snag on on words I'd never heard before, and I was fascinated with people with people's speech patterns and in their word choices, and even now I collect words. I have a notebook that I keep words in and there's this game I play where I'll I'll say okay these are some really amazing words I love these words and somehow by the end of the novel I'm going to work them all in <laughs> I love that I also love the I, this the visual you just gave of you'll be listening and a word will snag snag your ear I, I really like that you also you use a little bit of French in this book um yes. I wonder do you speak French or I do not but I was <laughs> I was so fascinated with and um well growing up in Cairo Georgia I don't know that I ever encountered anyone that spoke a second language except in high school I did take um a year of Spanish and I you know could maybe say three words but um I was fascinated you know French you know seems to me to be an elegant language and it's a way just another form of manipulation that Marlissa uses against Annalise. You know, Mar Marlissa will speak French um, to Annalise and um, sort of these coded mysteries that Annalise has to unravel. Because, you know, in 1956 in South Georgia, how are you going to translate <laughs> these peculiar things that this young girl says to Annalise? Yeah, it is another level of what makes her alluring and I think that's part of it is that Annalise is really desperate to understand but also desperate for acceptance into this world oh. you know she really doesn't know that that she is someone without means until she experiences others who have them yes you do this amazing job of describing the opulence of the place actually the house the grounds um and I wondered if you had what places you visited or what movies you watched or where you got the language for describing that kind of opulence? Yeah, I always, as a boy, I was fascinated with architecture. Um, mm -hmm. And um, in some of the old homes on Broad Street in Carriage, which of course nothing, nothing as mammoth as, as what's described in, you know, as, as mistletoe. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but also from movies, you know, like um, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, you know, I was fascinated by the space. So when I set out to describe Miss Little Toe, I didn't want it to be, you know, a traditional white columned home. I just sort of turned it into this sort of unusual place that, that you wouldn't typically see in, in the South. And so it's just sort of a combination of, of Gothic and uh, Georgian. Yeah, there's something about them even driving up to the place that has a sense of mystery and magic to it, I thought, just coming onto the grounds. Mayfield Wood, yeah, they go through. So I, well, I like the idea of, of course, not being able to see the home from the road. Yeah. And, you know, beyond the gates, she's really traveling from one world into another when she travels to Mistletoe. And um, I remember visiting Biltmore once. Yes. Uh, in, in Asheville. North Carolina. And, yeah. And there's, um, but you drive through this enormous park, which was designed, I believe, by the gentleman that designed um, Central Park in, in New York City. Let's pause there. I had to look that up. And Robert's right. The man considered the founder of American landscape architecture, Frederick Law Olmsted, designed the grounds of New York City Central Park, of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and of the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina. Now, back to our chat. One of the other notes I have is about the invitation to the party. You've said it at a time that you call half-past enchantment. And you write, it's a time when day begins to trickle, when truth is no longer illuminated by the harsh glare of light, when the world is bent and folded into fantasy and cast in the flickering glow of flame. Half-past enchantment. <laughs> so I just want to go to a party that happens at half-past enchantment. I want you to know. <laughs> Me have too. You that party? Have you had this party? Where did this idea come uh, from? The invitation is to this big gala that um, the Mayfields were throwing. And so the invitation was written by Cordelia Mayfield. It seemed to me that that would be the invitation that she would write. Yes. Well, let's just say that Cordelia wears Christian Dior. She does. Yes. Um, couture, which, you know, is Certainly nothing that I ever experienced in South Georgia, but I wish I had. <laughs> I would have loved to have known someone who wore a Christian Dior 24-7. And right. um, so it's 1956, and you're in the throes of what was called Christian Dior's new look. It was the new look. So yeah. it was sort of this revolution in, in fashion. And uh, Cordelia Mayfield just happened to be one of Christian Dior's um, biggest and best American clients. <laughs> I liked the influence of fashion. I think that music and fashion are part of this character, even though she's 11 and she's uh, barefoot and dirty and, you know, sipping her daddy's whiskey. And, but you have, you've imbued her with, the, with an appreciation for those things and a fascination with those things. That's really... yeah. I think I was fascinated by all of those things. You know, if there's any part of me inside of Annalise, it's probably that. Just my uh, appreciation of music and and fashion and um, people who she thinks are interesting. Yeah, I like that. Well, I wonder 
we've talked before about how Moonlight Sonata really, you listen to that, that music sort of helped inspire the pace and the, um, the, the movements of this novel. I wondered if there was anything else for you right now that was doing that. Right now for like what I'm currently working on? Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's interesting. I uh, So th there's an epilogue in The Cicada Tree and um, it's not original to the story. I wrote that just a couple of months ago um, during the editing process. And um, it, because the book starts off very, there's an innocence about it and it gets progressively dark. And I don't really care for stories that perfectly tie everything up into a neat little bow. Sometimes I like happy endings, but in dark Gothic novels, I do sort of appreciate when things don't completely work out for everyone. So when I wrote the epilogue, I got really excited about the characters again. And so then I started to think, I wonder, what do I want to do next? And how do I want to spend, say, the next year mm -hmm. of my life? And I kind of think I'd like to um, just go back to these characters and figure out what their lives are like and what happens next. Well, I noticed that one of your brothers put together a video for a cocktail. Yeah. It <laughs> yes. ties into the cicada tree. And it was really charming, actually. He's a bearded guy and he's mixing up a cocktail <laughs> and some hard liquor. And um, I just, I love that it included a family member. So I was just wondering, like, how your family has responded to this novel. Well, and my, my brother, Chris, who... Um, I'm the oldest of four and he's the brother after me, you know, and he's been extremely ex excited. He's a, he's an executive for ABC liquors in Florida. And you're right. He's just, he kind of looks like somebody who can be on duck dynasty, right? but he, he is the smartest, one of the smartest people I know. Um, mm -hmm. And he, and he's traveled all through Europe. He can tell you anything and everything you'd ever want to know about every wine that was ever made. Um, wow. I mean, he just has such a vast knowledge and, um, he started um, a line of service line of specialty cigars. So he, you know, he's traveled, you know, to Cuba. I mean, he's been everywhere. And so he's such a smart fella. And he actually filmed the making of that cocktail over the holidays when I was home in South Georgia for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away that he could talk about the story as well as he did. You know, he, he yeah. does this description about, you know, why he used each of the ingredients. Yeah, that's it's very moving, very sweet. Well, is there, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that's important to talk about? Well, this is my debut novel. This is my very first one. It's interesting to be in the middle of life and to be at the beginning of something. Yeah. And, and I'm grateful for that. It's, um, it's exciting and scary all at once. You know, yeah. I, I traveled on my 40th birthday. I went with um with my partner and two friends to Milledgeville, Georgia to visit Andalusia, which was Flannery O'Connor's family farm. And you can oh. visit it. And so we went on a tour and I um, sort of unraveled myself from, from the group and went out onto this big screen porch they had. And I remember that day, I remember thinking, gosh, you know, I, I made a wish and then I made myself a promise. I said, I will do my very best to write a readable, publishable novel. <laughs> And I wanted to do it by 50. So when this novel's coming out, I'll be a couple months shy of turning 53. So I'm not too far off the mark there. <laughs> I think it is funny in, in the middle, as you said. Yeah. You, know, you can still identify 
the 11-year-old version of yourself and the 19-year-old version of yourself and the 25-year-old version of yourself. Like, we're the same age, you and I. And I think when I was 11 or 19 or 25 or 35, what I thought I would be like or feel like at 52, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm really just still a compilation of all those younger versions of my, I'm really still oh. the same person, you know? <laughs> like, I don't know when you really start feeling like an adult. <laughs> Absolutely. I know. I feel, I think that the only difference for me is that there are very few firsts that are left mm. um, in some ways. Yeah, I think emotionally, you know, there are very few emotional firsts that are left. So where there would be this sense of excitement in certain areas of your life, you know, there's um, not complacency, I, I think, but there's just a calmness. And I think that for me, having this book come out at this point in my life really has added a new spark, a level of, of excitement um, that, that I want to hold on to <laughs> because it's a, it's, a, it's a first. Yes, I think that's part of continuing to grow, right? Continuing to be, um, what's the phrase is lifelong learner, right? Yeah. You, you continue to, that you continue to grow and challenge yourself and um, be inspired uh, and and going down a path like this, even if you felt like I always wanted to be a writer, but actually going down the path of of creating a story and interacting with peers who help you move it forward and finding a publisher and all of those risks of hearing no, right? All of those places where you can be told no that prevent us sometimes from, from yes, trying. The, the, the fear of rejection. And I think that's where, you want everyone to love what you do, but not everyone will, of course. It's impossible. Um, but you do open yourself up. You know, when you in, um, endeavor into anything that's artistic, they're going to be critics. And um, yeah. I'm much more tough-skinned than I used to be. I'm wondering how I'll take some of the negative criticism. <laughs> I'm hoping that I'll process it well. I think you're going to find a lot of positive feedback for this story, in my opinion. Like I have, I have pages of these of me writing down. You know, there's one in where, she, where you're talking about um, Virginia. She says, "I imagined a crater-sized hole sprawled across Virginia's insides, a never-ending need for attention." <laughs> like that is really good, Robert. That's really talk about Minnie Jean. Miss Minnie Jean held out her vows until she wore out their welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Miss Minnie Jean is. Hard. She's hard to like. I think that she's, uh, yeah, she's extremely hard to like. But I know women like her. I do know and I, women. And I knew girls like Virginia. Like you wrote these characters and I thought, oh, I just wanted you to know, like I wrote down a lot of little phrases that I thought, how did you just do that in four words or eight words? You just, boom, you just nailed it. So I had a few more passages that I went over with Robert, but I'll end the episode here. And then you can make your own notes on how Robert Gwaltney's writing in his debut novel, The Cicada Tree, resonates with you. I'll put a link to his website, the book trailer, and the cocktail recipe inspired by the novel and created by his brilliant brother Chris in the show notes. Thanks to the Pulpwood Queen, Kathy Murphy, for first introducing me to Robert. Thanks to Robert and Moonshine Cove Publishing for the advanced reader copy. 
And as always, thank you for listening. This has been Episode 44.